Welcome, my ghouls and ghasts, and today I bring to your epic ears not scary stories to tell in the dark, not horror tales that bring chills, but an episode all about fairies, elves, dwarves, trolls, kobolds, and misses. Yes, as usual, something special for you special people. Now, this episode is a little bit different than most, so I've spent more time on research than usual, and have located a book written in 1892 that talks strictly about all things Fae, and I'm loving it. It's written in older fashion and requires some translating, which is why it's taken so long to do this piece of work, but totally worth it. The first half of this episode is more about research, and the second half is all about rhymes and stories and tales. And mates, they're strange. <laughs> I've also not added music to this episode, and I'd love your opinion on whether it did or didn't bother you. For these research pieces, I find that it might be easier to focus on the content without any music rolling in the back. Keen to hear your thoughts, though. Now, turn off the lights, turn up the sound, and let's dive into fairy mythology from an 1892 perspective. The Fairy Mythology Origin of the Belief in Fairies According to a well-known law of our nature, effects suggest causes and another law perhaps equally general, implies us to ascribe to the actual and efficient cause the attribute of intelligence. The mind of the deepest philosopher is thus acted upon equally with that of the peasant or the savage. The only difference lies in the nature of the intelligent cause at which they respectively stop. The one pursues the chain of cause and effect, and traces out its various links till he arrives at the great intelligent cause of all. However, he may designate him, the other, when unusual phenomena excite his attention, ascribes their production to the immediate agency of some of the inferior beings recognized by his legendary creed. The action of this latter principle must forcibly strike the minds of those who disdain not to bestow a portion of their attention on the popular legends and traditions of different countries. Every extraordinary appearance is found to have its extraordinary cause assigned, a cause always connected with the history or religion ancient or modern, of the country, and not frequently varying with a change of faith. The noises and eruptions of Etna and Stromboli were, in ancient times, ascribed to Typhoon or Vulcan, and at this day the popular belief connects them with the infernal regions. The sounds resembling the clanking of chains, hammering of irons, and blowing of bellows once to be heard in the island of Bari were made by the fiends, whom Merlin had set to work to frame the wall of brass to surround Caermarthen. The marks which natural causes have impressed on the solid and unyielding granite rock were produced, according to the popular creed, by the contact of the hero, the saint, or the god. Masses of stone, resembling domestic implements in form, were the toys or the corresponding implements of the heroes and giants of old. Grecian imagination ascribed to the galaxy, or Milky Way, an origin in the teeming breast of the Queen of Heaven. Marks appeared in the petals of flowers, on the occasion of a youth's or a hero's untimely death. The rose derived its present hue from the blood of Venus, as she hurried barefoot through the woods and lawns, while the Professor of Islam less fancifully referred to the origin of this flower to the moisture that exuded from the sacred person of their prophet. Under a purer form of religion, the cruciform stripes which mark the back and shoulders of the patient ass first appeared, according to the popular tradition, when the Son of God, 
condescended to enter the holy city, mounted on that animal. And a fish only to be found in the sea still bears the impress of the finger and thumb of the apostle who drew him out of the waters of Lake Tiberius to take the tribute money that lay in his mouth. The reputation of the voice among the hills is, in Norway and Sweden, ascribed to dwarves mocking the human speaker, while the more elegant fancy of Greece gave birth to Echo, a nymph who pined for love, and who still fondly repeats the accents that she hears. And the magic scenery, occasionally presented on the waters of the Straits of Messina, is produced by the power of the Fata Morgana. The gossamers that float through the haze of an autumnal morning are woven by the ingenious dwarves, the verdant circlets in the mead are traced beneath the light steps of the dancing elves, and St. Cuthbert forges and fashions the bees that bear his name and lie scattered along the shore of Lindisfarne. In accordance with these laws, we find in most countries a popular belief in different classes of being distinct from men and from the higher order of divinities. These beings are usually beloved to inhabit in the caverns of earth or the depths of the waters a region of their own. They genuinely excel mankind in power and in knowledge, and like them are subject to the inevitable laws of death, though after a more prolonged period, though after a more prolonged period of existence. How these classes were first called into existence, it is not easy to say, but if, as some assert, all the ancient systems of heathen religion were devised by philosophers for the instruction of rude tribes by appeals to their senses. We might suppose that the mind which peopled the skies with their thousands and tens of thousands of divinities gave birth also to the inhabitants of the field and flood, and that the numerous tales of their exploits and adventures are the production of poetic fiction or rude invention. It may further be observed that not unfrequently a change of religious faith has invested with dark and malignant attributes beings once the object of love, confidence, and veneration. It is not our intention in the following pages to treat of the awful or lovely deities of Olympus, Valhalla, or Meru. Our subject is less aspiring, and we confine ourselves to those beings who are our fellow inhabitants of Earth whose manners we aim to describe, and whose deeds we propose to record. We write of fairies, fays, elves, or alio quo nomni gordant, which translates to that which delights in name. Origin of the word fairy. Like every other word in extensive use, whose derivation is not historically certain, the word fairy has obtained various and opposite etymons. Merrick Casaborn, and those who, like him, deduce everything from a classic source, however unlikely to derive fairy from a Homeric name of the centaurs, or think that fee, whence fairy, is the last syllable of nympha. Sir W. Owsley derives it from the Hebrew peer, to adorn, skinner, from the Anglo-Saxon to fare, to go, others from feres, companions, or think that fairy folk is quasi-fair folk. Finally, it has been queried if it be not Celtic. But no theory is so plausible or is so supported by such names as that which deduces the English fairy from the Persian peri. It is said that the Painim foe, whom the warriors of the cross encountered in Palestine, spoke only Arabic, the alphabet of which language, it is well known, possesses no P. 
and therefore organically substitutes an F in such foreign words as contain the former letter. Consequently, Peri became, in the mouth of the Arab, Ferri, whence the crusaders and pilgrims who carried back to Europe the marvellous tales of Asia, introduced into the West the Arabo-Persian word Ferri. It is further added that the Morgane or Morgana, so celebrated in old romance, is Merjan Pere, equally celebrated all over the East. Now you'll have to forgive my pronunciation, folks, or correct me in the comments below. All there is wanting to this so very plausible theory is something like proof, and some slight agreement with the ordinary rules of etymology. Had Feire or Fairy originally signified the individual in the French, and English, the only languages in which the word occurs, we might feel disposed to acquiescence in it. But they do not, and even if they did, how should we deduce from them the Italian fatta, and the Spanish fada, or hada, words which unquestionably stand for the same imaginary being, unless on the principle by which menage must have deduced Luton from Lemur, the first letter being the same in both. As to the fair Merjane Paris, we fancy a little too much importance has been attached to her. Her name, as far as we can learn, only occurs in the Kahraman Name, a Turkish romance, though perhaps translated from the Persian. The foregoing etymologies, it is to be observed, are all the conjectures of English scholars. For the English, for the English is the only language in which the name of the individual fairy has the canine letter to afford any foundation for them. Leaving, then, these sports of fancy, we will discuss the true origin of the word used in the Romantic languages to express the being which we name fairy of romance. These are the fae, fae, French, harda in Spanish, and fatta in Italian. The root is evidently, we think, the Latin fatum. In the 4th century of our era, we find this word made plural, and even feminine, and used as the equivalent of passé. And from here, our subject naturally divides itself into two principal branches, corresponding to the different classes of beings to which the name fairy has been applied. The first, beings of the human race, but endowed with powers beyond those usually allotted to men and women, whom we shall term fays or fairies of romance. The second, those little beings of the popular creeds, whose descent we propose to trace them from the cunning and ingenious Durgeur or dwarves of northern mythology, and whom we shall denominate elves of popular fairies. It cannot be expected that our classifications should vie in accuracy and determinateness with those of natural science. The human imagination of which these beings are the offspring works not, at least, that we can discover, like nature, by fixed and invariable laws, and it would be hard indeed to exact from the fairy historian the rigid distinction of classes and order which we expect the botanist or chemist to adhere to. The various species so run into and are confounded with another, the actions and attributes of one kind are so frequently ascribed to another, that scarcely have we begun to erect our system when we find the foundation crumbling under our feet. Indeed, it could not well be otherwise when we recollect that all these beings once formed parts of ancient and exploded systems of religion, and that it is chiefly in the traditions of the peasantry that their memorial has been preserved. We will now proceed to consider the fairies of romance, and as they are indebted, though, not for their name, yet perhaps for some of their attributes, to the Paris of Persia, of which we will commence with that country. 
We will thus pursue our course through Arabia till we arrive at the Middle Age Romance of Europe and the gorgeous realms of Fairyland, and thence casting a glance at the Fairy Queen, advance to the mountains and forests of the north, there to trace the origins of the light-hearted night-tripping elves. Now I'm going to start with the Petty Whiffair, an Arabian tale involving fairies. The son of a merchant in a city of Hindostan, having been driven from his father's house on account of his undutiful conduct, assumed the garb of a kalendere, or wandering derwish, and left his native town. On the first day of his travels, being overcome with fatigue, before he reached any piece of rest, he went off the high road and sat down at the foot of a tree by a piece of water. While he sat there, he saw at sunset four doves alight from a tree on the edge of the pond, and resuming their natural form, for they were peris, take off their clothes and amuse themselves by bathing in the water. He immediately advanced softly, took up their garments without being seen, and concealed them in the hollow of a tree, behind which he placed himself. The pieris, when they came out of the water and missed their clothes, were distressed beyond measure. They ran about on all sides looking for them, but in vain. At length, finding the young man and judging that he had possessed himself of them, they implored him to restore them. He would only consent on one condition, which was that one of them should become his wife. The Pieris asserted that such a union was impossible, them whose bodies formed of fire and a mortal who was composed of clay and water. But he persisted, and selected the one which was the youngest and handsomest. They were at last obliged to consent, and having endeavoured to console their sister, who shed copious floods of tears at the idea of parting with them, and spending her days with one of the sons of Adam, and having received their garments, they took leave of her and flew away. The young merchant then led home his fair bride, and clad her magnificently, but he took care to bury her Pierre raiment in a secret place, that she might not be able to leave him. He made every effort to gain her affections, and at length succeeded in his object. She placed her foot in the path of regard, and her head on the carpet of affection. She bore him children, and gradually began to take pleasure in the society of his female relatives and neighbours. All doubts of her affection now vanished from his mind, and he became assured of her love and attachment. At the end of ten years, the merchant became embarrassed in his circumstances, and he found it necessary to undertake a long voyage. He committed to the Pieri to take care of an aged matron, in whom he had the greatest confidence, and to whom he revealed the secret of her real nature and showed the spot where he had concealed her raiment. He then placed the foot of departure in the stirrup of travel, and set out on his journey. The Pieri was now overwhelmed with sorrow of his absence, or for some more secret cause, and continually uttered expressions of regret. The old woman sought to console her, assuring her that the dark night of absence would soon come to an end, and the bright dawn of interview gleam from the horizon of divine bounty. One day when the Pieri had bathed, and was drying her amber-scented tresses with a corner of her veil, the old woman burst out into expressions of admiration at her dazzling beauty. Ah, nurse, replied she, though you think my present charms great, yet had you seen me in my native raiment, you would have witnessed what beauty and grace the divine creator has bestowed upon Pieri's. 
for know that we are among the most finished portraits on the tablets of existence. If then thou dearest to behold the skill of my divine artist, and admire the wonders of creation, bring the robes which my husband has kept concealed, that I may wear them for an instant, and show thee my native beauty, the like of which no human eye but my lords hath gazed upon. The simple woman assented, and fetched the robes and presented them to the Pieri. She put them on, and then, like a bird escaped from the cage, spread her wings and crying farewell, soared to the sky, and was seen no more. When the merchant returned from his voyage and found no sign of the rose of enjoyment on the tree of hope, but the lamp of bliss extinguished in the chamber of felicity, he became as one, Pieri stricken, a recluse in the cell of madness, banished from the path of understanding. He remained lost to all the bounties of fortune and the useful purposes of life. The Pieri had been styled the fairest creation of poetical imagination. No description can equal the beauty of the female Pieri, which I will from now on say fairy, to keep it common sense. And the highest compliment a Persian poet can pay a lady is to liken her to one of these lovely aerial beings. The sun, the moon, the fairies and mankind, compared with you, do fair do far remain behind, for sun and moon have never formed so mild, the fairies have, but Roman deserts, wild. Seraphim of the Hebrews, the Daemons, or the Platonists, or the Genie of the Romans, neither do they accord with the Hawari of the Arabs, still less do they agree with the fairies of Shakespeare, for though fond of fragrance and living on that sweet essential food, we never find them employed in killer cankers in the musk rosebuds, or obliged to serve the fairy queen, to dew her orbs upon the green. Neither is their stature ever represented so diminutive as to make keyholes previous to their flight, or the bells of flowers their habitations. If poetic imagination exhausted itself in portraying the beauties of the fairies, it was no less strenuous in heaping attributes of deformity on the devs. They may well vie in ugliness with the devils of our forefathers at Lahore, in the Mogul's place. Our pictures of Jews or Dives, intermixed in most ugly shapes with long horns, staring eyes, shaggy hair, great fangs, ugly paws, long tails, with such horrible deformity and deformity that I wonder the poor women are not frightened therewith. Such then is the very system of the Mohammedan Persians in which the influence of Islam is clearly perceptible, the very names of their fabled country and its kings being Arabic. Had we it as it was before, the Arabs forced their law on Persia, we should doubtless find it more consistent in all its parts, more light, fanciful, and ethereal. Now we'll talk about fairyland. The fairies of romance were divided by three kinds. Avalon, placed in the ocean, like the island of the blessed, those that, like the place of Padi Banau, are within the earth, and lastly, those that, like Oberon's domains, are situated in wilderness among the Haltus Hairy. Of the castle and isle of Avalon, the abode of Arthur and Oberon and Morgu la Fay, or otherwise known as Morgan the Fay, the fullest description is to be seen in the romance of Augier le Danios, 
from which, as we know, no surer quarter but the work itself to refer to for the part connected with the present subject. And this moves us into the tale of Augier. At the birth of Augier, several fairies attended, who bestowed on him various gifts. Among them was Mogu la Fay, who gave him that he should be her lover and friend. Accordingly, when Augier had long himself distinguished himself in love and war, he had attained his hundredth year. The affectionate Mogu thought it was time to withdraw him from the toils and dangers of mortal life, and transport him to the joys and the repose of the castle of Avalon. In pursuance of this design, Augier and King Karahu are attacked by a storm on their return from Jerusalem, and their vessels separated. The bark on which Augier was floated along the sea till the bark came near the castle of Lodestone. The vessel is wrecked against the rocks. The provisions are divided among the crew, and it is agreed that every man, as his stock failed, should be thrown into the sea. Augier's stock holds out longest, and he remains alone. He is nearly reduced to despair when a voice from heaven cries to him, God commandeth thee that, as soon as it is night, thou go unto a castle that thou wilt see shining, and pass from bark to bark, till thou be in an isle which thou wilt find. And when thou wilt be in that isle, thou wilt find a little path, and of what thou mayest see, within be not dismayed at anything. And then Ogier looked, but he saw nothing. When night came, Ogier recommended himself to God, and seeing the castle of Lodestone, all resplendent with light, he went from one to the other of the vessels that were wrecked there, and so got into the island where it was. On arriving at the gate, he found it guarded by two fierce lions. He slew them and entered, and making his way into a hall, found a horse sitting at a table, richly supplied. The courteous animal treats him with the utmost respect, and the starving hero makes a hearty supper. The horse then prevails on him to get on his back and carries him into a splendid chamber where Augier sleeps the night. The name of this horse is Papillon, who was a Lucian and had been a great prince, but King Arthur conquered him. So he was condemned to be 300 years a horse without speaking one single word. But after the 300 years, he was to have the crown of joy which they wore in fairy. Next morning he could not find Papillion, but on opening a door he meets a huge serpent, whom he also slays, and follows a little path which leads him into an orchard. He plucks an apple from one of the trees and eats it, but is immediately afflicted by such violent sickness as to be put in fear of speedy death. He prepares himself for his fate, regretting his rash decision. Whilst in this delirious state, happening to turn to the east and see someone, this someone tells him that she is Morgan Le Fay, who at his birth had kissed him and retained him for her loyal amour. Though forgotten by him, she places then on his finger a ring, which removes all infirmity, and Augier, a hundred years old, returns to the vigour and beauty of thirty. She now leads him to the castle of Avalon, where her brother King Arthur, and Aubron and Molibron, and when Morg drew closer, to the said castle Avalon, the fays came to meet Augier, singing most melodiously as ever could be heard. So he entered into the hall to solace himself completely. There he saw several fay ladies adorned and all crowned with crowns most sumptuously made, and very rich, and evermore they snug, danced, and led a right joyous life, without thinking of any evil thing whatsoever, but of taking their mundane pleasures. 
Morg here introduces the knight to Arthur, and she places on his head a crown rich and splendid beyond estimation, but which has the Lethean quality, that whoso wears it, forthwith his former state and beings forgets, forgets both joy and grief, pleasure and pain. For Ogier instantly forgets country and friends, he had no thought whatever for them, nor of Gion his brother, nor of his nephew, Gothier. His days now rolled on in never-ceasing pleasure. Such joyous pastime did the fae ladies make for him, that there is no creature in this world who could imagine or think it, for to hear them sing so sweetly it seemed to him actually that he was in paradise. So the time passed from day to day, from week to week in such sort, that a year did not last a month to him. But Avalon was still on earth, and therefore its bliss was not unmixed. One day Arthur took Ogier aside, and informed him that Capalus, king of the Lutions, incessantly attacked the castle of Faerie, with designs to eject King Arthur from its dominion, and was accustomed to penetrate the base court, calling on Arthur to come out and engage him. Ogier asked permission to encounter this formidable personage, which Arthur willingly granted. No sooner, however, did Capalus see Ogier than he surrendered to him, and the knight had the satisfaction of leading him into the castle and reconciling him to its inhabitants. Two hundred years passed away in these delights, and seemed to Ogier but twenty. Charlemagne and all his lineage had failed, and even the race of Ogier was extinct, when the Paynims invaded France and Italy in vast numbers, and Morgulonga thought herself justified in withholding Ogier. Accordingly, she one day took the Lethian crown from off his head. Immediately, all his old ideas rushed on his mind and inflamed him with an ardent desire to revisit his country. The fairy gave him a brand which was to be preserved from burning, for so long as it was unconsumed, so long should his life extend. She adds to his gift the horse Papelion and his comrade Benoist. And when they were both mounted, all the ladies of the castle came to take leave of Ogier, by the command of King Arthur and of Morglefay, and they sounded and obeyed of instruments the most melodious thing to hear that ever was listened to. Then, when the obeyed was finished, they sung with a voice so melodious that it seemed actually to Ogier that he was in paradise again. And again, when that was over, they sung with the instruments in such sweet concordance that it seemed rather to be a thing divine rather than mortal. The knight then took leave of all, and a cloud enveloping him and his companion raised him and set them down by a far fountain near Montpellier. Ogier displays his ancient prowess, routs the infidels, and on the death of the king, is on the point of espousing the queen, when Morg appears and takes him back to Avalon. Since then, Ogier has never reappeared in this world. And so ends the tale of Ogier. Now we'll jump to the Durger. By Ekfur Jorth Nathan, I Ek Understein Stath, I dwell the earth beneath, I possess under the stone my seat. These diminutive beings, dwelling in rock and hills, and distinguished for their skill in metallurgy, seem to be peculiar to the Gotho-German mythology. Perhaps the most probable account of them is that they were the personification of the subterraneous powers of nature, for it may be again observed that all the parts of every ancient mythology are but personified powers and moral qualities. The Edda thus describes their origins. Then the gods sat on their seats and held a council, and called to mind how the Durga had become animated in the clay below in the earth, like maggots in flesh. 
The Durga had been first created and had taken life in Ymir's flesh, and were maggots in it, and by the will of the gods they became partakers of human knowledge and had the likeness of men, and yet they abode in the ground and in the stone. Modskona was the first of them, and then Didian. The Durga are described as being of low stature, with short legs and long arms, reaching almost down to the ground when they stand erect. They are skillful and experts in the melting of gold, silver, and iron, and other metals. They form many wonderful and extraordinary things for the Esser, and for the mortal heroes, and the arms and armor that came from their forges are not to be paralleled. Yet the gift must be spontaneously bestowed, for misfortune attends those extorted from them by violence. In illustration of their character, we bring forward the following narratives from the Eda and Sagas. The homely garb in which they are habited will not, it is hoped, be displeasing to readers of taste. The tales of old, their date unknown, and they therefore demand respect. Yet it is difficult to suppress a smile at finding such familiar, nay, almost vulgar terms applied to the great supernal powers of nature, as occurs in this following tale. Loki and the Dwarf Loki, the son of Lofier, had out of mischief had cut off all the hair of Sif. When Thor found this out, he seized Loki, and would have broken every bone in his body, only that he swore to get the Suatlafa to make for Sif hair of gold, which would grow like any other hair. Loki then went to the dwarves, that they are called the sons of Ivaldar. They first made the hair, which as soon as it was put on the head, grew like natural hair. Then the ship Skibladni, which always had the wind with it, wherever it would sail, and thirdly the spear Gagnir, which always hit in battle. Then Loki laid his head against the dwarf Brock, that his brother Itri could not forge three such valuable things as these were. They went to the forge, Itri set the swineskin to the fire, and bid his brother Brock to blow, and not to quit the fire till he should have taken out the things he had put into it. And when he was gone out of the forge, and that Brock was blowing, there came a fly, and settled upon his hand, and bit him. But he blew without stopping till the smith took the work out of the fire, and it was a boar, and its bristles were of gold. He then put gold into the fire, and bid him not to stop blowing till he came back. He went away, and then the fly came and settled on his neck, and bit him more severely than before. But he blew on, till the smith came back and took out the fire, and pulling out with it, the golden ring Drupnir. Then he put iron into the fire, and bid him blow, and said that if he stopped blowing, all the work would be lost. The fly now settled between his eyes, and bit so hard, that the blood ran into his eyes, so that he could not see. So when the bellows were down, he caught at the fly in all haste, and tore off its wings. But then came the smith, and said that all that was in the fire had nearly been spoiled, and then took out of the fire the hammer, Mjolnir. Gave all the things to his brother Brock, and bade him go with them to Asgard, and settle the wager. Loki also produced his jewels, and they took Odin, Thor, and Frey for judges. Then Loki gave to Odin the spear Gugnir, and to Thor the hair that Sif was to have, and to Frey Skidbloodny, and told their virtues as they have already been related. Brock took out his jewels and gave to Odin the ring, and said that every ninth night they would drop from it eight other rings as valuable as itself. To Frey he gave the boar, and said that he would run through the air and water by night and by day better than any horse, 
and that never was their night so dark that the way by which he went would not be lit from his hide. He gave the hammer to Thor and said that it would never fail to hit a troll and that whatever he threw it at, it would never miss and that he could never fling it so far that it would not itself return to his hand. And when he chose, it would become so small that he might put it in his pocket. But the fault of the hammer was that its handle was too short. Their judgment was that the hammer was the best and that the dwarf had won the wager. Then Loki prayed hard not to lose his head, but the dwarf said that could not be. Catch me then, said Loki. And when he went to catch him, he was far, far away. For Loki had shoes with which he could run through air and water. Then the dwarf prayed Thor to catch him, and Thor did so. The dwarf now went to cut off his head, but Loki said he was to have the head only and not the neck. Then the dwarf took a knife and a thong and went to sew up his mouth, but the knife was bad. So the dwarf wished that his brothers all were there, and as soon as he wished it, it was there, and he sewed his lips together. Northern mythologists thus explain this very ancient fable. Sif is the earth and the wife of Thor, the heaven or atmosphere. Her hair is the trees, bushes and plants that adorn the surface of earth. Loki is the fire god that delights in mischief. When by immoderate heat he has burned off the hair of Sif, her husband compels him so by temperate heat to warm the moisture of the earth, that its former products may spring up more beautiful than ever. The boar is given to Freya, to whom and his sister Freya as the gods of animal and vegetable abundance. Loki brought the gifts from the underground people, and it seems to indicate a belief that metals were prepared by a subterranean fire, and perhaps the forging of Thor's hammer, the mythic emblem of thunder, by a terrestrial demon on a subterranean anvil, may suggest that the natural cause of thunder is to be sought in the earth. Our next story is Thorsten and the Dwarf. When spring came, Thornston made ready his ship, and put twenty-four men on board of her. When they came to Vinland, they ran her into harbour, and every day he went to shore to amuse himself. He came one day to an open part of the wood, where he saw a great rock, and out a little way from it, a dwarf, who was so horridly ugly, and was looking up over his head with his mouth wide open, and it appeared to Thornston that it ran from ear to ear, and that the lower jaw came down to his knees. Thornston asked him why he was acting so foolishly. Do not be surprised, my good lad, replied the dwarf. Do you not see that great dragon that is flying up there? And I believe that it is Odin himself that has sent the monster to do it. But I shall burst and die if I lose my son. Then Thornston shot at the dragon and hit him under one of the wings, so that he fell dead to the earth. But Thornston caught the dwarf's child in midair and brought him to his father. The dwarf was exceedingly glad, and was more rejoiced than anyone could tell, and he said, A great benefit have I to reward you for, who are the deliverer of my son, and now choose your recompense in gold and silver. Cure your son, said Thornston, but I am not used to taking rewards for my services. It were not becoming, said the dwarf, if I did not reward you, and let not my shirt of sheep's wool which I will give you appear a contemptible gift. For you will never be tired when swimming, or get a wound, or if you wear it next to your skin. Thornston took the shirt and put it on, and it fitted him well. Though it had appeared too short for the dwarf, the dwarf now took a gold ring out of his purse and gave it to Thornston, and bid him to take good care of it, 
telling him that he never should want for money while he kept that ring. He next took a black stone and gave it to Thorstein and said, If you hide this stone in the palm of your hand, no one will see you. I have not many more things to offer you, or that would be of any value to you. I will, however, give you a firestone for your amusement. He then took the stone out of his purse, and with a steel point. The stone was triangular, white on one side and red on the other, and a yellow border ran around it. The dwarf then said, If you prick the stone with the point in the white side, there will come on such a hailstorm that no one will be able to look at it. But if you want to stop the shower, you have only to prick on the yellow part, and there will come so much sunrise that the hole will melt away. But if you should like to prick the red side, then there will come out of it such fire, with sparks and crackling, that no one will be able to look at it. You may also get whatever you will by means of this point and stone, and they will come of themselves back to your hand when you call them. I can now give you no more such gifts. Thorsten then thanked the dwarf for his presence and returned to his men, and it was better for him to have made this voyage than to have stayed at home. And so ends Thorsten and the dwarf. The dwarf sword Turfing. Swafolami, the second in descent from Odin, was king over Gardarik. One day he rode a-hunting and sought long after a hart, but could not find one the whole day. When the sun was setting, he found himself immersed so deep in the forest that he knew not where he was. There lay a hill on his right hand, and before it he saw two dwarves. He drew his sword against them, and cut off their retreat by getting between them and the rock. They proffered him ransom for their lives, and he asked them for their names, and one of them was called Dirin, and the other Dwalin. That they were the most ingenious and expert of all dwarves, and he therefore imposed on them that they should forge him a sword, the best they could form. Its hilt should be of gold, and its belt of the same metal. He moreover enjoined that the sword should never miss a blow, and should never rust, and should cut through iron and stone, as through a garment, and should be always victorious in war, and in single combat for him who bear it. These were the conditions on which he gave them their lives. On the appointed day he returned, and the dwarves came forth and delivered him the sword. And when Dwalin stood in the door, he said, This sword shall be the bane of a man every time it is drawn, and with it shall be done three of the greatest atrocities. It shall also be thy bane. Then Swaforlami struck at the dwarf so, that the blade of the sword penetrated into the solid rock. Mates, I'm not sure about you, but when a dwarf gives you a cursed sword and says, don't use the cursed sword, you don't use it. This guy's got more brawns than brains. Sheesh. Thus, Swafalami became possessed of this sword, and he called it Turfing. And he buried in war and in single combat, and he slew with it the giant Thiasi, and took his daughter, Fridur. Swafalami was shortly after slain by the berserker Andgrim, who then became master of the sword. When the twelve sons of Angrim were to fight with Hjalmar and Odur for Ingeborg, the beautiful daughter of King Ignis, Angantyr, bore the dangerous turfing, but all the brethren were slain in the combat and were buried with their arms. Angantyr left an only daughter, Hervor, who, when she grew up, dressed herself in man's attire and took the name Hervardar and joined a party of Vikinger, or also known as pirates. Knowing that Turfing lay buried with her father, she determined to awaken the dead and obtain the charm blade.
and at night ascending to the tombs that were enveloped in flame, and by force of entreaty, obtaining from the reluctant Angintir, the formidable turfing. Havor proceeded to the court of King Gudmund, and there one day, as she was playing at tables with the king, one of the servants chanced to take up and draw turfing, which shone like a sunbeam. But turfing was never to see the light. But before the bane of man, and Hervor, by a sudden impulse, sprang from her seat, snatched the sword, and struck off the head of the unfortunate man. Hervor, after this, returned to the house of her grandfather, Jarl Biatmar, where she resumed her female attire and was married to Hordfund, the son of King Gudmund. She bare him two sons, Angintir and Hedricur, the former of a mild and gentle disposition, the latter violent and fierce. Horford would not permit Heidecker to remain at his court, and as he was departing his mother, he was given other gifts, and one of them was turfing, with his brother accompanying him out of the castle as he departed. Heidecker drew out his sword to look and admire at it, but scarcely did the rays of light fall on the magic blade when the berserker rage came on its owner, and he slew his gentle brother. After this, he joined a body of Vikinger and became so distinguished that King Harold, for the aid he lent him, gave him his daughter Helga in marriage. But it was the destiny of Turfing to commit crime, and Harold fell by the hand of his son-in-law. Heidrika was afterwards in Russia, and the son of the king was his foster son. One day, as they were out hunting, Heidrika and his foster son happened to be separated from the rest of the party. When a wild boar appeared before them, Heidrika ran at him with a spear, but the beast caught it in his mouth and broke it across. He then alighted and drew turfing and killed the boar. But on looking around, he could see no one but his foster son, and turfing could only be appeased with warm human blood, and he slew the unfortunate youth. Finally, King Heidrika was murdered in his bed by his Scottish slaves, who carried off turfing. But his son, Angintir, who succeeded him, discovered and put them to death, and recovered the magic blade. In the battle against the Huns, he afterwards made great slaughter, but among the slain was found his own brother, Lordur. And so ends here, the history of the dwarf sword, Turfing. Goodness, it's like Lord of the Rings, but with a sword instead, the weapon that corrupts, betrays, and slays. What a curse indeed. So we've heard some dwarven tales, now we're going to hop on over to the elvish tales, focusing on Ely Maids, or Ely Maids, as some say. And the first one is a elvish rhyme. Sir Olaf in the Elven Dance Sir Olaf he rode out at early day, and so came he unto an elf dance gay. The dance it goes well, so well in the grove. The elf father reached out his white hand free. Come, come, Sir Olaf, tread the dance with me. The dance it goes well, so well in the grove. Oh, naught I will, and naught I may. Tomorrow will be my wedding day. The dance it goes well, so well in the grove. And the elf mother reached out her white hand free. Come, come, Sir Olaf, tread the dance with me. The dance it goes well, so well in the grove. Oh, naught I will, and naught I may. Tomorrow will be my wedding day. The dance it goes well, so well in the grove. And the elf sister reached out her white hand free. Come, come, Sir Olaf, tread the dance with me. The dance, it goes well, so well in the grove. Oh, naught I will, and naught I may, tomorrow will be my wedding day. The dance, it goes well, so well in the grove. And the bride she spake with her bride made so. What may it mean that the bells thus go? 
the dance it goes well, so well in the grove. Tis the custom of this our isle, they replied, each young swain ringeth home his bride. The dance it goes well, so well in the grove, and the truth from you to conceal I fear, Sir Olaf is dead and lies on his bier. It goes well, so well in the grove. And on the morrow, ere light was the day, in Sir Olaf's house three corpses lay. The dance it goes well, so well in the grove. It was Sir Olaf, his bonny bride, and eke his mother, of sorrow she died. The dance it goes well, so well in the grove. And thus ends Sir Olaf. Your next tale is Svend Failing and the Ellie Maid. Svend Failing was, while a little boy, at service in Jello Wood House in Framley, and it one time happened that he had to ride off a message to Ristrup. It was evening before he got near home, and as he came by the hill of Boromess, he saw the L.A. maids, or otherwise elvish maids, who were dancing without seizing round and round his horse. Then one of the L.A. maids stepped up to him and reached him a drinking cup, bidding him at the same time to drink. Sven took the cup, but as he was dubious of the nature of the contents, he flung it over his shoulder, where it fell onto the horse's back, and singed off all the hair. While he had the horn fast in his hand, he gave his horse the spurs and rode off full speed. The Ellie maids pursued him till he came to the Tridgebrand's mill and rode through the running water over which she could not follow him. She then earnestly conjured Svend to give her back the horn, promising him in exchange twelve men's strength. On this condition, he gave back the horn and got what she had promised him. But it very frequently put him to great inconvenience, for he found that along with it, he had gotten an appetite for twelve. Looks like she had the last laugh in the end. Next up, the Ellie Maids. There lived a man in Alsum, near Ordense, who, as he was coming home one night from Seden, passed by a hill that was standing on red pillars, and underneath there was dancing and great festivities. He hurried on past the hill as fast as he could, never venturing to cast his eyes that way. But as he went along, two fair maidens came to meet him, with beautiful hair floating over their shoulders, and one of them held a cup in her hand. When she reached out to him, that he might drink of it, the other then asked him if he would come again, at which he laughed and answered, Yes! But when he got home, he became strangely affected in his mind, was never at ease in himself, and was continually saying that he had promised to go back. And when they watched him closely to prevent his doing so, he at last lost his senses and died shortly after. Wow, these maids are so devilish. Let's party. Oh, and by the way, you're going to go mad. See ya. Sheesh. Your next Ellie May's tale is Maid Vi. There was once a wedding and a great entertainment at Esther Heidinger. The party did not break up till morning, and the guests took their departure with a great deal of noise and bustle. While they were putting their horses to their carriages, previous to setting out home, they stood talking about their respective bridal presents. And while they were talking loudly, and with the utmost earnestness, there came from a neighbouring moor a maiden clad in green, with plated rushes on her head. She went up to the man who was loudest, and bragging most of his presence, had said to him, What wilt thou give to Maid Vi? The man, who was elevated with all the ale and brandy he had been drinking, snatched up a whip and replied, Ten cuts of my whip. And that very moment, he dropped down dead on the ground. 
I've never heard of Made Vi, but I'm definitely going to look into this one. Either way, never piss her off. Your next tale is The Ellie Maid Near Ebeltoft. A farmer's boy was keeping cows not far from Ebeltoft. There came to him a very fair and pretty girl, and she asked him if he was hungry or thirsty, but when he perceived that she guarded with the greatest solicitude against his getting a sight of her back, he immediately suspected that she must be an Ellie maid. For the Ellie people are hollow behind. He accordingly would give no heed to her, and endeavoured to get away from her. But when she perceived this, she offered him her breast, that he should suck her. <sighs> One of these stories again. And so great was the enchantment that accompanied this action, that he was unable to resist it. But when he had done as she desired him, he had no longer any command of himself, so that she had now no difficulty in enticing him with her. Ah, she enchanted a poor young lad with her boob. Yep, I've read it all now. Nothing surprises me at this point. He was three days away, during which time his father and mother went home and were in great affliction, for they were well assured that he must have been enticed away. But on the fourth day, his father saw him a long way off coming home, and he desired his wife to set a pan of meat on the fire as quick as possible. The son then came in at the door and sat down at the table without saying a word. The father, too, remained quite silent, as if everything was as it ought to be. His mother then set the meat before him, and his father bid him eat. But he let the food lie untouched, and said that he knew now where he could get much better food. The father then became highly enraged, took a large switch, and once more ordered him to take his food. The boy was then obliged to eat, and as soon as he tasted the flesh, he ate it up greedily, and instantly fell into a deep sleep. He slept for as many days as the enchantment had lasted, but he never after recovered the use of his reason. So basically, he sucked an elf's boob, and lost his mind. Yep, things I thought I'd never say. Right, our next tale is Hans Puntelder. There are three hills on the land of Bupilgard in Funen, which are to this day called the Dance Hills, from the following occurrence. A lad named Hans was at service in Bupilgard, and as he was coming one evening past the hills, he saw one of them raise on red pillars. A great dancing and much merriment underneath, he was so enchanted by the beauty and magnificence of what he saw that he could not restrain his curiosity, but was in a strange and wonderful manner attracted nearer and nearer, till at last the fairest of all the fair maidens that were there came up to him and gave him a kiss. From that moment he lost all command of himself and became so violent that he used to tear to pieces all the clothes that were put on him, so that at last they were obliged to make him a dress of sole leather, which he could not pull off him. And ever after, he went by the name of Hans Puntledeer, i.e. Hans of Soul Leather. Now, again, getting kissed, touched, or enticed by the Ellie maids is basically a curse to go insane. Now, in this book, there is some law that discusses Ely kings, otherwise known as Elven kings. According to Danish tradition, the Ely kings under the denomination of Promontory kings keep watch and ward over the country. Whenever there's war or any other misfortune threatens to come on the land, they would be seen on the promenades. One of these kings resides at Moen, 
on the spot which still bears the name of King's Hill. His queen is the most beautiful of beings, and she dwells at the queen's chair. This king is a great friend of the king of Stevens. Another tradition, however, says that there is but one king who rules over the headlands of Moan, Stevens, and Rugen. He has a magnificent chariot, which is drawn by four black horses. In this, he drives over the sea, from one promontory to another. At such time, the sea grows black and is in the great commotion and the loud snorting and neighing of horses may be distinctly heard. Now of the Ellie kings and of their kind, there is a popular creed that there is some strange connection between the elves and the trees. They not only frequent them, but they make an interchange of form with them. In the churchyard of Storhedinch, in Zealand, there are the remains of an oak wood. These, say the common people, are the Ellie king's soldiers. By day they are trees, and by night, valiant warriors. In the woods of Rugard, in the same island, is a tree which by night becomes a whole Ely people, and goes about all alive. It has no leaves upon it, yet it would be very unsafe to go break or fell it, for the underground people frequently hold their meetings under its branches. There is, in another place, an elder tree growing in a farmyard, which frequently takes a walk in the twilight about the yard, and peeps in through the window at the children when they are alone. It was perhaps these elder trees that gave origin to the notion, in Danish, Hild, a word not far removed from Eli or Eli, which refers to elder, and the peasantry believe that in or under the elder tree dwells a being called Haldemur, or rather elder mother, or Haldrukwindi, elder woman, with her ministriant spirits. A Danish peasant, if he wanted to take part of an elder tree, used previously to say three times, O oh, Hildemur, 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 let me take of thy elder, and I will let thee take something of mine, in return. If this was omitted, he would be severely punished. They tell of a man who cut down an elder tree, but he soon after died suddenly. It is moreover not prudent to have any furniture made of elder wood. If a child was put to rest in a cradle made of this wood, Hildemir would come and pull it by the legs, and gave it no rest till it was put to sleep elsewhere. So basically, you summon a tree that comes to your house and pokes the baby's feet until you move it. That is something I've never heard of before. There's also a tale about a shepherd who heard his three children crying one night. And when he inquired the cause, they said someone had been sucking them. Their breasts were found to be swelled, and they were removed to another room, where they were quiet. The reason is said to have been that the room was floored with elder. This is some strange, strange tales. I did not expect these. Now let's sink our teeth into some troll stories. Oh yeah. The Troll Wife. The grandfather of Rior, who dwelt at Fugelkar, also called Birdmarsh, in the parish of Svatsborg, also called Black Castle, lived close to a hill, and one time in the broad daylight, he saw sitting there on a stone a comely maiden. He wished to intercept her, and for this purpose he threw steel between her and the hill. Wow, that's an aggressive pickup attempt. Whereupon her father laughed within the hill, and opening the hill door asked him if he would have his daughter. Okay, so trolls have a unique sense of humour. He replied in the affirmative, and as she was stark naked, wow, he took some of his own clothes and covered her up with them, and he afterwards had her christened. As he was going away, her father said to him, When you are going to have your wedding, you must provide twelve barrels of beer 
and bake a heap of bread and the flesh of four oxen, and drive to the borough or hill where I keep, and when the bridal gifts are to be bestowed, depend on it, I will give mine. This also came to pass, for when others were giving, he raised the cover of the cart and cast into it so large a bag of money that the body of it nearly broke, saying at the same time, This is my gift. He said, Moreover, when you want to have your wife's portion, you must drive to the hill with four horses and get your share. When he came there afterwards at his desire, he got copper pots, the one larger than the other, till the largest pot of all was filled with the smaller ones. He also gave him other things, which were helmets, of that colour and fashion, which are large and thick, and which are still remaining in the country to this day. And our next tale, the altar cup in Agarup. Between the villages of Marup and Agarup in Zealand, there is said to have lain a great castle, the ruins of which are still to be seen near the strand. Tradition relates that a great treasure is concealed among them, and that a dragon there watches over three kings' ransoms. Here, too, people frequently happen to get a sight of the underground folk, especially about festival times, for then they have danced and great jollity going on down on the strand. One Christmas Eve, a farmer's servant in the village of Agarup went to his master and asked him if he might take a horse and ride down to look at the troll meeting. The farmer not only gave him leave, but desired him to take the best horse in the stable, so he mounted and rode away down to the strand. When he came to the place, he stopped his horse, and stood for some time looking at the company, who were assembled in great numbers. And while he was wondering to see how well and how gaily the little dwarves danced, up came a troll to him, and invited him to dismount and take a share in their dancing and merriment. Another troll came jumping up, took his horse by the bridle, and held him while the man got off, and danced away merrily with them the whole night long. When it was dawning near day, he returned them his very best thanks for his entertainment, and mounted his horse to return home to Agarup. They now gave him an invitation to come again, on New Year's night, as they were then to have great festivity, and a maiden who held a gold cup in her hand invited him to drink the stirrup cup. He took the cup, but, as he had some suspicion of them, he, while he made as if he was raising the cup to his mouth, threw the drink over his shoulder, ah, we've heard this one before, folks, so that it fell on the horse's back, and immediately singed off all the hair. So this is one for one. He then clapped to the horse's sides and rode away, with a cup in his hand over a ploughed field. So a cup instead of a horn this time. Interesting. The trolls instantly gave chase all in a body, but being hard set to get over the deep furrows, they shouted out without ceasing, Ride on the lay and not in the clay. He, however, never minded them, but kept to the ploughed fields. However, when he drew near the village, he was forced to ride out on the level road, and the trolls now gained on him every minute. In his distress, he prayed unto God, and he made a vow that if he should be delivered, he would bestow the cup on the church. He was now riding along just by the wall of the churchyard, and he hastily flung the cup over it, that it at least might be secure. He then pushed on at full speed, and at last got into the village. And just as they were on the point of catching hold of the horse, he sprung in through the farmer's gate, and the man clapped to the wicket after them. He was now safe. But the trolls were so enraged that, taking up a huge great stone, they flung it with such force against the gate that it knocked floor planks out of it. There are no traces now remaining of that house, but the stone is still said to be lying in the middle of the village of Agarup. The cup was presented to the church, and the man got in return the best farmhouse on the land of Erikshom. 
So I found that really interesting that that story shared a lot in common with the elven story, except for the fact that trolls are really stupid and they tend to tell you how to escape them, but then get angry at how you escaped. <laughs> Troll logic. Our next tale is Scooter in the Fire. Near Gudmanstrop, in the district of Odd, okay, these names are really, you know, on the nose here, is a hill called Juliohor, or otherwise known as Hollow Hill. The hill folk that dwell in this mount are well known in all the villages around, and no one ever omits making a cross on his beer barrels, for the trolls are in the habit of slipping down from Hollow Hill to steal beer. One evening late, a farmer was pressing by the hill, and he saw that it was raised up on red pillars. Ah, oh, there's red pillars again. And that underneath there was music and dancing and splendid troll banquets. So the red pillars must be literally red pillars elevating a gap between the base and the topmost part of the hill. There's some unique imagery right there. The man stood a long time gazing on the festivity. But while he was standing there deeply absorbed in admiration of what he saw, so again we had that trend of enchantment, all of a sudden, the dancing stopped. Uh-oh. And the music ceased. Double uh-oh. And he heard a troll cry out in a tone of the utmost anguish, Scooty is fallen into the fire, come and help him up. The hill then sank, and all the merriment was at an end. Meanwhile, the farmer's wife was at home all alone, and while she was sitting and spinning her toe, she never noticed a troll who had crept through the window into the next room, and was at the beer barrel drawing off the liquor into his copper kettle. Ah, so the trolls have initiated a distraction. The room door was standing open, and the troll kept a steady eye on the woman. The husband now came into the house, full of wonder at what he had seen and heard. Hark ye, dame, he began. Listen now till I tell you what has happened to me. The troll redoubled his attention. As I came just now by Hollow Hill, continued he, I saw a great troll banquet there, but while they were in the very middle of their glee, they shouted out within the hill, Scotty is fallen into the fire, come and help him. At hearing this, the troll, who was standing beside the beer barrel, was so frightened that he let the tap run and the kettle of beer fall on the ground, and tumbled himself out of the window as quickly as he might be. The people of the house, hearing all this noise, instantly guessed what had been going on inside, and when they went in there, they saw the beer all running about and found the copper kettle lying on the floor. This they seized and kept in lieu of the beer that had been spilled. And the same kettle is said to have been a long time to be seen in the villages around there. So I guess maybe the troll Scotty did actually fall on the fire and that freaked out his friend. Goodness, poor Scotty. And lastly today in this particular episode, I'm going to talk about Nisses. The book opens up with Og Trolldi, Hexa, Nissa, I Fear, Vrai, which translates to and witches, trolls, and nisses in each nook. The Nis is the same being that is called Kobold in Germany, Brownie in Scotland, and whom we shall meet in various other places under different appellations. He is in Denmark and Norway, also called Nisse Golddreng, and in Sweden, Tomtgube, old man of the house, or briefly, Tomte. He is evidently of the dwarf family as he resembles them in appearance and, like them, has the command of money and the same dislike to noise and tumult. He is of the same size of a year-old child, but has the face of an old man. His usual dress is grey, with a pointed red cap, but on Michaelmas Day he wears a round hat like those of the peasants. No farmhouse goes on well unless there is a niss in it, and well is it for the maids and the men when they are in favour with them. 
They may go to their beds and give themselves no trouble about their work, and yet in the morning the maid will find the kitchen swept up and water brought in, and the men will find the horses in the stable well cleaned and curried, and perhaps a supply of corn cribbed for them from their neighbours' barns. But he punishes them for any irregularity that takes place. The Nisses of Norway, we are told, are fond of the moonlight, and in the winter time they may be seen jumping over the yard or driving in sledges. They are also skilled in music and dancing, and will, it is said, give instructions on the fiddle. For, of course, the trade of a grey sheep. Every church, too, has its Nis, who looks to order and chastises those who misbehave themselves. That particular Nis is called Kirkigrim. What a cute little name. Now I'm going to cover seven Nisses. And then I'll finish the episode there, because there's so much to cover in this book I've discovered that I have a feeling I'll be here all night recording if I just kept going. But I did want to share something that was different, and Nisses aren't really talked about. So, the first one is the Niss of Removing. It is very difficult, they say, to get rid of a Niss when one wishes it. A man who lived in a house in which a Niss carried his pranks to great lengths resolved to quit the tenement and leave him there alone. Several cartloads of furniture and other articles were already gone, and the man was come to take away the last, which consisted of empty tubs and barrels and things of that sort. The load was now all ready, and the man had just bidden farewell to his house and to the Niss, hoping for comfort in his new habitation, when happening, from some cause or other, to go back to the cart, there he saw the Niss sitting in one of the tubs, plainly with the intention of going along with him wherever he went. The good man was surprised and disconcerted beyond measure at seeing that all his labour was to no purpose, but the Niss began to laugh heartily, popped his head out of the tub, and cried to the bewildered man, Ha! We're moving today, you see! What a mischievous little guy. <laughs> Our next story is The Penitent Niss. It is related of a Niss who had established himself in a house in Jutland that he used every evening after the maid was gone to bed to go into the kitchen to take his grout, which they used to leave him in a wooden bowl. One evening he sat down as usual to eat his supper with a good appetite, drew over the bowl to him, and it was just beginning, as he thought, to make a comfortable meal, when he found that the maid had forgotten to put any butter in it for him. Oh, no. No butter for my grunt. At this, he fell into a furious rage, I'm with you, buddy, got up in the height of his passion, and went out into the cowhouse and twisted the neck of the best cow that was in it. Oh, my God. We have a small old man on a rampage. But as he felt himself still very hungry, I mean... You didn't eat your grout. He stole back again to the kitchen to take some of the grout, such as it was, and when he had eaten a little of it, he perceived that there was butter in it, but that it had sunk to the bottom under the grout. He was now vexed at his injustice towards the maid, that to make good the damage he had done, he went back to the cowhouse and set a chest full of money by the side of the dead cow, where the family found it the next morning, and by means of it got into flourishing circumstances. Okay, well, at least, you know, he's a responsible penitent Niss. Just remember, never shake the hand of a Niss and never annoy a Niss. The Niss and the boy. So these are Nisses that hang around children. There was a Niss in a house in Jutland. He every evening got his grout at the regular time, and he, in return, used to help both the men and the maids, and look to the interests of the master of the house in every respect. There came one time an arch-mischievous boy to live at service in this house, 
and his great delight was, whenever he got an opportunity, to give the Nis all the annoyance in his power. So good to see Dennis the Menace was in action, even back then. One evening late, when everything was quiet in the place, the Nis took his little wooden dish and was just going to eat his supper when he perceived that the boy had put the butter at the bottom and concealed it. Oh no, we know where this is going. I fear for the boy to share the same fate as a cow. In hopes that he might eat the grout first and then find the butter when all the grout was gone. He accordingly set about thinking how he might repay the boy in kind. So after pondering a little, he went up to the loft where the man and the boy were lying asleep in the same bed. When he had taken the bedclothes off them, he saw the little boy by the side of the tall man and he said, Short and long don't match. And with his word, he took the boy by the legs and dragged him down the man's legs. Okay. <laughs> he then went up to the head of the bed and short and long don't match, said he again. And then he dragged the boy up once more. When, do what he would, he could not succeed in making the boy as long as the man. He still persisted in dragging him up and down in the bed and continued at this work the whole night long, till it was broad daylight. By this time he was well tired. And in my opinion kind of insane. So he crept up the window stool and sat with his legs hanging down into the yard. But the house dog, for all dogs have a great enmity to the Nis, as soon as he saw him, began to bark at him, which afforded such amusement to Nis, as the dog could not get up to him. Then he put down first one leg and then the other to him, and teased him, and kept saying, look at my little leg, look at my little leg. In the meantime, the boy had awakened, and had stolen up close behind him. And while Nis was least thinking of it, and was going on with his look at my little leg, the boy tumbled down into the yard to the dog, crying at the same time, look at the whole of him now. So basically, this particular Nis had lost its mind and was now assaulting the family. Oh my goodness. The Nis stealing corn. So these are the really mischievous ones. There lived a man at Thystring in Jutland. Oh, Jutland's the place to be for Nis, who had a Nis in his barn. This Nis used to attend to the cattle and at night he would steal fodder for them from their neighbours, so that this farmer had the best feed and most thriving cattle in the country. One time the boy went along with the Nis to Fuglaris to steal corn. This Nis took as much as he thought he could carry, but the boy was so covetous and said, Oh, oh take, take more. more. Sure, sure, we can rest, rest now, now and, and then. then. Rest, rest, said the Nis. Rest? rest? And, and what, what is rest? rest? Do what Do I, I tell you, you, replied the boy. Take, take more and we shall find rest when we get out of this. The Nis then took more, and they went away with it. But when they were come to the land of Thystring, the Nis grew tired, and then the boy said to him, Here, now, now is rest. rest. And they both sat down on the side of a little hill. If I had oh, known, I said the Nis, if I had I known the rest was, was so good, I'd have carried off all that was in the barn. It happened some time after that the boy and the Nis were no longer friends. And as the Nis was sitting one day in the granary window, with his legs hanging out into the yard, the boy ran at him and tumbled him back into the granary, but the Nis took his satisfaction off him that very same night. For when the boy was gone to bed, he stole down to where he was lying and carried him naked, as he was, out into the yard, and then laid two pieces of wood across the well and put him lying on them, expecting that when he awoke, he would fall from the fright down into the well and be drowned. But he was disappointed, for the boy came off without injury. Wow. That took a dark turn. Yeesh, the Nis are really vindictive. The Nis and the Mare. There was a man who lived in the town of Tirup, 
who had a very handsome white mare. This mare had for many years gone like an heirloom from father to son because there was a nis attached to her, which brought luck to the place. This nis was so fond of the mare that he could hardly endure to let them put her to any kind of work, and he used to come himself every night and feed her of the best, and as for this purpose he usually brought a superfluity of corn, both threshold and in straw, from the neighbor's barn, and all the rest of the cattle enjoyed the advantage of it, and they were all kept in exceeding good case. It happened at last that the farmhouse passed into the hand of a new owner, who refused to put any faith in what they told him about the mare. So the luck speedily left the place and went after the mare to his poor neighbor who had brought her. And within five days after his purchase, the poor farmer who bought the mare would find that his circumstances were gradually improving, while the income of the other, day after day, fell away and diminished at such a rate that he was hard set to make both ends meet. If now the man who had gotten the mare had only known how to be quiet and enjoy the good times that were come upon him, he and his children and his children's children after him would have been in flourishing circumstances till this very day. But when he saw the quantity of corn that came every night to his barn, he could not resist his desire to get a sight of the nis. So, this sounded like a bad idea. He concealed himself one evening at nightfall in the stable, and as soon as it was midnight, he saw how the nis came from his neighbor's barn and brought a sackful of corn with him. It was now unavoidable that the nis it was now unavoidable that the nis should get a sight of a man who was watching. So he, with evident marks of grief, gave the mare her food for the last time, cleaned and dressed her to the best of his abilities, and when he had done, turned round to where the man was lying and bid him farewell. From that day forward, the circumstances of both the neighbors were on an equality, for each now kept his own. Wow. Well, I'm glad, at least, that the Nis didn't go on a rampage, kill the mayor, kill the family, and kill the old guy. Super lucky. The Nis riding. There was a Nis in a farmhouse who was forever tormenting the maids. That sounds about right at this point, having heard the previous stories, and playing all manner of roguish tricks on them and they in return were continually planning how to be even with them. There came one time to the farmhouse a Jottish drover, and put up there for the night. Among his cattle, there was one very large Jottish ox, and when Nis saw him in the stable, he took a prodigious fancy to get up and ride on his back. He accordingly mounted the ox, and immediately began to torment the beast in such a manner that he broke loose from his halter and ran out into the yard with the Nis on his back. Poor Nis, poor Nis, really, was now terrified in earnest and began to shout and brawl most lustily. His cries awakened the maid, but instead of coming to his assistance, they laughed at him till they were ready to break their hearts. And when the ox ran against a piece of timber so that the unfortunate Nis had his hood all torn by it, the maid shouted at him and called him lame leg, lame leg. And he made off with himself in the most miserable plight. But the Nis did not forget it to the maids. Yeah, I can get a feeling what's going to happen here. For the following Sunday when they were going to the dance, he contrived, unknown to them, to smut their faces all over, so that when they got up to dance, everyone that was there burst out laughing at them. Alright, well at least it wasn't something as terrible and, and horrific as they woke up without any hands or like they couldn't walk anymore or something crazy. Could have been worse, guys. Could have been worse. And lastly, the Nisses in Vosborg. There was once an exceeding great number of Nisses in Jutland. Yeah, no kidding. Those in Vosborg in particular were treated with so much liberality that they were careful and solicitous, beyond measure for their master's interest. 
They got every evening in their sweet ground a large lump of butter, and in return for this, they once showed great zeal and gratitude. One very severe winter, a lonely house in which there were six calves was so completely covered by the snow that for the space of fourteen days, no one could get into it. When the snow was gone, the people naturally thought that the calves were all dead of hunger. But far from it, they found them all in excellent condition, the place cleaned up, and the crib was full of beautiful corn, so that it was quite evident the Nisses had attended to them. But the Niss, though thus grateful when well treated, is sure to avenge himself when anyone does anything to annoy and vex them. As a Niss was one day amusing himself by running on the loft over the cowhouse, one of the boards gave way, and his leg went through. The boy happened to be in the cowhouse when this happened, and when he saw the Niss's leg hanging down, he took up a dung fork and gave him with it a smart rap on the leg. At noon, when the people were sitting around the table in the hall, the boy sat continually laughing to himself. The bailiff asked him what he was laughing at, and the boy replied, Oh, I got such a blow at Nis today, and gave him such a hell of a rap with my fork when he put his leg down through the loft. No, cried Nis, outside of the window. It was not one, but three blows you gave me, for there were three prongs on the fork, but I shall pay you for it, my lad. Next night, while the boy was lying fast asleep, Nis came and took him up and brought him out into the yard. Okay, guys and girls. Is it A, he's naked, two, wakes up strapped to horses, possibly naked, three, unconscious in the well. Let's see what happens. The Nis brought him out into the yard, then flung him over the house and was so expeditious in getting to the other side of the house that he caught him before he came to the ground and instantly pitched him over again and kept going on with this sport till the boy had been eight times backwards and forwards over the roof. And in night time, he let him fall into a great pool of water, and then set up such a, and then set up such a shout of laughter at him that it wakened up all the people that were in the place, and probably broke all the bones in his body. Wow. So that concludes this research piece for now. And mates, I hope you enjoyed your special Halloween episode as much as I did researching this one. There is such a wealth of knowledge in this book that I can't wait to dig through later on. I hope you had a wonderful time listening to it. And at this point, it is the largest episode I've ever uploaded. So a new milestone for me. Thank you all for listening, mates. And I want to thank supporters that make this possible. My Odin IT Titans, Maya, the legend that sends this episode into overdrive every time, ensuring that the podcast subscriptions and technology to remaster episodes are always relevant and accessible. You make it possible, Maya. Please, never forget that, and you're amazing. And my white tea warlords, Ion Cows and Lee Bauer, you two legends that help this podcast grow and find new music to create that perfect atmosphere. Thank you both for your support. And the lifeblood that is my Ulgrain forces, Chad Warren, Just Heather, Paige Marcini, Peter F.L.E., Tasha Moncrief, Christina Boyd, Divided by Zero, Dolphin and Cow, Michelangelo, Yacone, Tea Time Drinker 1, and Solstra. Mage, thank you all, and have a wonderful Halloween. Lots of love my way to your way. Cheers, mates, and as always, till next we meet.